welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Dr. Daniela Simone, lecturer in law and co-director of the Institute of Brand and Innovation Law at University College London Faculty of Laws. We will discuss her book, Copyright and Collective Authorship, which is published by Cambridge University Press. So welcome to the show, Daniela. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. Um, I'm so glad that David Simon introduced us, uh, especially because I enjoyed your book very much, especially as a copyright scholar myself. It, it touched on a lot of, of issues that I'm also really interested in um, around social norms and um, questions of aesthetic, aesthetics in in relation to works of authorship and how we should consider those in in a copyright context. So congratulations on, on publishing it. Thank you so much. It's really great to hear that um, we have some similar thoughts in this area. Yeah, yeah. Well, so your, your book primarily focuses on collective authorship in a copyright context, but I wonder if we could take a step back for a minute and just talk about copyright itself for, for listeners who may not have a kind of rich, uh, detailed understanding of what copyright is and and what it does maybe you could talk about kind of what what copyright is in a legal sense and and what it protects okay sure um so copyright law is a type of intellectual property law um it's a law that protects intangible property the fruits of sort of creative labor so we'll all be really familiar with the sorts of creative works that are protected by copyright. So we're talking about literary works, dramatic works, film, music, and things like that. And copyright functions basically to provide an incentive and a reward for the authors and creators of those works as a way to kind of encourage them in their creative endeavors, which is, of course, beneficial to the creators themselves, but also to society at large, because it provides us with a rich source of different creative works in a sort of vibrant cultural sphere. Cool, cool. So you mentioned incentives in in talking about what copyright is and and what it does. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Sort of from a theoretical or, or policy standpoint, what's what's the purpose for creating copyright protection and how does or maybe how should the purpose of copyright protection inform what it protects and what kind of protection it provides? Sure. So um, a very common uh, way of thinking about copyright law is in terms of incentives, in particular economic incentives. And the idea is that creative works like books and films might take a lot of energy and time to create uh, a lot of investment goes into them, but then when they're out in the world, they're very cheap and easy to copy. And so you might end up with this problem that there is a, a, a market failure because these creative works can be very, very easily copied. And then this might then mean that creators have less of an incentive to invest all of that time and energy into creating them in the first place. So the way copyright law works is it kind of it gives those authors control over the work so they can prohibit people from copying them without their permission. This allows them to then charge royalties to charge people for the ability to use those works. Um, and then they can kind of recoup their costs and that ensures that they have adequate incentive 
in to create. So that's a kind of very popular um, way of thinking about copyright law that particularly underlies a lot of the common law legal systems like the United States and the U.S. So a lot of the terms that you've just used in describing sort of why we have copyright are kind of normatively laden and imply sort of a sense of valuation of the works of authorship that are protected by by copyright. And, and I wonder if you could talk about sort of the role of normativity in in copyright doctrine. In other words, you know, what role does like aesthetic judgment or um, aesthetic values play, at least in a traditional kind of doctrinal sense, in kind of thinking about whether or not and how works are protected by copyright? Okay, so there's, I think there's been... Um, the general consensus is that copyright law is um, not very concerned with aesthetics in the sense that copyright law um, doesn't depend on the merits of the work. So to be protected as a literary work, you don't need to be a great literary masterpiece. Uh, it protects, you know, really mundane things um, as well as uh, work of uh, that's really appreciated in artistic and cultural circles. So the idea was that there's really this idea that judges don't, judge the aesthetic merits of works when in, when they're um, working out whether or not copyright should subsist in those works. Okay, okay. So among other things, your book focuses primarily on the copyright law of the United Kingdom, uh, kind of informed to some degree by United States copyright law as well. But of course, you know, copyright law differs to a greater or lesser degrees uh, among different countries. Um, to what extent is, do you think, the the thesis of your book informed by the legal regime in, in which you're situating it? So I think a lot of the trends that I am identifying in the book are trends which I think come to the fore more clearly in the U.S. law than they do in the U.K. law. So the principle that just we, we just talked about of aesthetic non-discrimination is something that comes through very strongly and very clearly in U.S. law, whereas we see um, fainter hints of it, I think, in the U.K. law. And we do see judges in the U.K. being a little bit more explicit, at least in my opinion, although I'm not an expert at all in U.S. law, um, you do see the, U the U.K. judges being a little bit more comfortable engaging with um, aesthetic matters when it comes to working out the sorts of um, input to creative works that should be rewarded with copyright protection and the recognition of authorship. And we also see kind of a bit more of a difference when it comes to the underpinning of copyright law. Whereas in the US context, with the US constitutional clause being one that really emphasizes the um, this in economic incentive idea of copyright protection, um, we have much less clarity in the UK when it comes to the normative underpinnings of copyright law. And I think that the other theories that possibly justify copyright protection, so more deontological theories that really talk about what it is that's intrinsic um, to creativity that merits protection, either because perhaps the author spent a lot of time and effort, they worked really hard, and that 
should be in somehow rewarded with a property right or they imbued their personality work, um, as is quite a common justification on the continent. We see, I think, more of that in the UK law. And certainly the ambiguity leaves a little bit more room for movement when it comes to understanding what actually is it that copyright's purpose is. And there's a quite a large degree of vagueness about that. In your book, you focus on collective authorship and the problems that collective authorship can pose for kind of existing copyright doctrine. So I wonder if you could talk about how copyright doctrine kind of paradigmatically deals with works that have one or that have more than one author and by extension potential multiple ownership and sort of why the existing doctrine can be problematic to or difficult to coherently apply in certain situations involving collective authorship? Okay. Um, I think actually it's quite interesting to think about the origin of copyright law. So it actually um, began around the time of the printing press. And at that time, the way in which authorship was conceptualized was something that really seemed like um, individual authorship. So you can think of the kind of paradigmatic idea of authorship, the writer writing their book. And copyright law principles really, I think, haven't evolved very far from that. So the classic model is this model of single authorship. But we do have other situations in which copyright law can come to terms with groups of people that create works. So one example might be employees that create works working together um, in the scope of their employment. And so the Copyright Act provides that in situations such as that, it's the employer who's the owner of the copyright in that work. And it makes sense from a kind of economic point of view. The employer has invested a lot of a lot of their um, resources and training um, the employees and the work sort of fits within the context of that employment. There's also another scenario envisaged by the Copyright Act, which is where you have a compiler who creates a collective work. So perhaps someone who creates an encyclopedia and they might get different authors to write different sections, but they will overall organize that work. And so you have a situation there where you have layers of copyright. You have each individual author who wrote their section of the encyclopedia who owns that section on its own. And then you have the compiler who owns the, the compilation, the collective work, the way in which those various um, entries are selected and arranged. And then the last scenario is um, what's uh, referred to as a work of joint authorship. And so the Act provides for a situation where you might have two or more authors who collaborate, they work together to create something that is greater than, um, that is a sort of joined up piece of work. So it's not like a collective work where the um, parts are separate. It's a work where you've worked together and the parts are not distinct and that's protected as a work of joint authorship. That joint authorship test is, um, there are a number of cases and most of the cases involve, at least in the UK, collaborations with a small number of people, two or three band members, for instance, in, in a pop group working together. Um, and that law has been criticised by a lot of scholars for being ambiguous and for being a bit arbitrary. Uh, the decisions described as being quite subjective. So there's actually this problem that we don't have a very clear sense of 
the various limbs of the test and how they ought to be applied. Um, and this becomes a big problem when it comes to large-scale collaboration. Because when you've got a small collaboration, such as two or three band members, for instance, it might be really easy to work out who the most important contributors are. Uh, the roles of each person might be quite clear. And um, so often what the courts have done is they've looked at that situation, they've tried to work out which of these people really should be uh, called authors and, and who perhaps hasn't made enough of a contribution to count. But when you come to collective authorship, which is kind of a broad umbrella term that I'm using for any situation where you have a large number of people collaborating together, you can tend to have a situation where you have a division of labor and where the creative control is shared amongst people. And it can be a lot more difficult for the law to find the way in which to identify which of those contributors has contributed enough of the right kind of effort that should be recognized, rewarded, and incentivized with copyright law by um, deeming them to be a joint author of that work. Okay, okay. Well, so in your book, you give several different examples of factual scenarios that seem to either frustrate application of traditional copyright doctrines around collective authorship and joint works, or perhaps seem to produce the wrong answer or where the application of the kind of traditional doctrine doesn't produce a satisfying um, answer as to how to deal with <laughs> copyright ownership and authorship under under the circumstances. So, so I wonder if you could talk about a few of those and sort of explain in detail sort of why it is that they seem to pose a problem for for copyright doctrine. Like for example, you talk about authorship of of Wikipedia, right? And so you've talked earlier about kind of collective works where like an encyclopedia where each part would be written separately. But Wikipedia of course is different. Maybe could you talk a little bit about how it's different and why those differences present problems for copyright doctrine? Sure. Um I think Wikipedia is a really interesting example because Wikipedia involves a collaboration of large numbers of people who don't know each other, who are located possibly all over the world, who contribute at different points in time, and often the contributions to Wikipedia can be incredibly small. And I think if copyright looks at, say, if you pick an individual Wikipedia page, Copyright law can really struggle to work out, what is this work? Is this one work that's like a draft, that's a perpetual work in progress? Or is it a series of different works? So each time somebody makes a change to a page and they upload the version that includes that change, is that a wholly new work? And there is, I think, quite a tendency in the case law to see works separately as much as possible. And the idea is to avoid complications that can arise when you have lots of different interests in the same work. So the preference is to try to look at it and see as many works as possible. And if you do that with Wikipedia, and if you think that each time I make an alteration to a Wikipedia page and I publish it online, that's a new literary work, you run into this problem that each time a person makes a change, in order for that work to be separately protectable, it must be original, and in, in a copyright sense, originality means the addition of some sort of um, creative choices. 
something that's enough to be protected as authorship in its own right. And because the changes to Wikipedia can be small, you could end up with this sort of really odd situation where you look at a Wikipedia page and you think, this is clearly literary, it clearly looks like a literary work, and it's quite substantial, so it ought to be protected. But each individual version has so little changes that none of them are original enough to be protected. So you could have a situation where you have something that looks like it's protectable, but in fact, no one of the layers in which constituted it are protectable. And part of this is to do with the way in which uh, we think about collaboration as well, which has kind of quite, I think, a um, impoverished meaning. So we tend to look at the acts of the authors in relation to individual drafts. And so it's hard to see a work like Wikipedia as a single work. We see them instead as a sort of vast array of works, none of which might potentially be original enough to be protected, which seems quite unreal. It doesn't really correlate to how contributors to Wikipedia feel about the activities which they're doing when they contribute to Wikipedia. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, sort of what's the perspective that Wikipedia contributors have to the work that they're doing? And, you know, sort of why is it in tension with the way copyright law conceptualizes the work of authorship kind of in the abstract? And maybe even to take it a step further, sort of what, if anything, can we do to sort of bring those things closer together? Sure. So I think there are kind of a number of things um, that you can talk about there. I guess one thing to say is that um, people that contribute to Wikipedia usually have a sense um, of what it is that they're contributing to. So Wikipedia is a um, project that is kind of built based on a a bunch of people, uh, regular Wikipedia contributors' views about the particular project they're engaging in. So Wikipedia sees itself as a free encyclopedia that anyone can edit. And the idea is that people contribute to it as a um, gift to to the community of knowledge. And so it's quite interesting that there are these sort of social norms that operate in the background. So regular Wikipedia contributors and the majority of contributors are a smaller group of regular contributors. They have a behind-the-scenes part of Wikipedia, which has uh, lots of policies that are developed consensually. They um, have dispute resolution procedures um, by which they solve um, editorial conflicts and that kind of thing. So they see themselves as contributing to this kind of ongoing project. So I think if you asked a Wikipedia contributor whether or not they thought their contribution was an individual work, I think they would probably not think that. They'd think that it was part of this ongoing work, this constant work in progress, and they would see themselves as collaborating and working together with other Wikipedia contributors, even if they haven't necessarily met them in person. Yeah, so I think there's a difference between the assumptions that copyright law makes about creativity and the way in which Wikipedia contributors see what it is that they're doing. So copyright law, especially um, if you think about it in terms of the economic incentive view, sees authors as motivated by the ability to um, recoup money for the um, investment that they've they've placed into their creative works, their ability to um, make an income from selling copies and controlling copies of their work. Whereas on Wikipedia, people contribute to Wikipedia for free, for fun. They donate their contributions, so they agree to a copyleft license. 
which is a way in which contributors are basically saying to the world that anybody can copy their work for free at any point as long as they're attributed as authors. So they're basically relinquishing control and they're relinquishing the ability to monetize that contribution. So in some sense, it's also in tension with the um, underlying assumptions that copyright law makes about why creators create. Yet it is a zone of creativity that clearly flourishes. You know, Wikipedia is this amazing resource. It's uh, very well used and, and quite reliable. Right, right, right. So a total kind of different way of kind of conceptualizing the relationship between authorship and and the work that is anticipated by copyright doctrine in a kind of an abstract sense. And and you point again in this section I, th- I found really interesting um, to uh, Australian Aboriginal art as sort of frustrating those kinds of doctrinal assumptions, but in a very different way. So I, I wonder if you could talk about, about that and why the sort of social assumptions or social kind of practices surrounding authorship there are in tension with kind of copyright assumptions. Okay. So when it comes to Australian Indigenous arts, um, This art has a really important role in Indigenous communities as a way in which traditional knowledge is passed down um, to generations. And it's a particular form of creativity where the community own the ritual knowledge that is um, depicted by artists. Only certain artists can depict that knowledge and they have to go through a period of apprenticeship and training in order to be able to do that. And then the resulting artwork is seen by that Indigenous community as owned by the community in a kind of quite a real sense. Yet there have been some frustrations because where that artwork has been um, used by other people, it's not possible for the community to actually enforce that interest because that interest isn't something that's recognised by copyright law. And so there's quite a well-known case in Australia, the Bullin case where a Indigenous community tried to bring a claim to um, stop offensive uh, commercial reproductions of artwork that had a sacred significance to them. And the court really tried sincerely quite hard to work out ways in which that interest could be recognised by copyright law, and they really struggled. And the problem was that the interest wasn't recognised as something that could be protected by authorship. Uh, by copyright authorship. That's because it was too remote from the actual physical artwork. It was an inspiration, an idea. And there's an important principle underlying copyright law that copyright protects only the expression of an idea, not the idea itself. Ideas are free. um, They belong in the public domain and anybody can use them. And the way in which the court applied the joint authorship test by seeing the input of the community as an idea only precluded them from sharing in joint authorship with the actual artist who physically did the painting. So what I argue in my book is that this is a um, that this was actually a choice that the joint authorship test is very vague and very open textured and actually has a lot more room for movement than the court recognized in that case. And so I suggest that Um, Part of the reason for this is this idea of aesthetic neutrality. So this idea that we can't make judgments about the sort of 
input that goes into the creative works that are protected and a preference for objective ways of measuring that input. So a preference to look at things like a close connection to the fixation or actual recording of the work. And when you look at the idea expression dichotomy in a kind of quite strict way, you might say, well, they haven't had a close enough connection to the work. But that's really a very, I think, unrealistic and acontextualized way of seeing things. And it's certainly not how Indigenous communities and Indigenous artists see the creative process. And there are cases that where more nebulous connections to works have been recognized as joint authorship. So in the case of Carla Holmes, which is kind of quite a well-known case that involves um, a design director who precisely instructed draftsmen to draw these drawings and of houses. And so in that case, the draftsmen were the only ones to put pen to paper, but they received kind of quite precise specifications from the um, design director, even though that design director never actually himself put pen to paper. And the court was willing to recognize that both parties here had actually contributed something that should be recognized as authorial because those final drawings of the houses really reflected the ideas and also the expression of the um, design director as well as the draftsman. So I try to argue that actually if you look at it from an Indigenous point of view, it's quite similar. So the ideas come from the uh, ritual knowledge, the way in which they're expressed is really something that the artist is um, taught over long periods of apprenticeship and there's ongoing control over the way in which those images are, pre are presented in actual artworks because of customary law which operates to uh, penalise artists if they don't appropriately represent those images and who hold those artists responsible for the way in which the works are subsequently used. So there's an analogy there that I think the court could have used to take a more expansive view of um, the authorship of that particular type of artwork in that very specific scenario where customary law has a really important role to play. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you, you talk about two other scenarios as well, where there's a similar kind of tension between the social or professional norms within a field and sort of the way copyright conceptualizes authorship. And that's um, scientific authorship and in motion pictures. Um, so I wonder if you could just really quickly kind of outline the sort of problems in thinking about both of those contexts through a copyright lens and sort of where you see tensions between the social norms in those fields and the way copyright law is sort of thinking about and sort of putting them into a copyright box in ways that is maybe not consistent with what the participants in those fields actually want and expect. Okay, so what you see in um, the cases of film and scientific authorship is, and I think you see this also in the other contexts of Wikipedia and, and um, Indigenous art, is that there are a really wide range of different social and cultural meanings of authorship. So authorship operates really differently in the cultural sphere and is very multidimensional. And copyright tends to have a fairly one-size-fits-all type view of authorship. And so, for instance, if you think about film authorship, um, authorship in film is kind of quite ambiguous because if you think about the film credits, 
you have various different contributors who are um, acknowledged for their various specific contributions, so directors, actors, and, and other sorts of contributors. And the order in which they're listed can be really important. And that's something that's quite important in the science context as well. So in scientific collaborations, particularly if you think in areas such as um, biomedical science and particle physics, often there are very large collaborations that involve the contributions of lots of different people who do very specific, highly specialized tasks. And the way in which they're listed as authors is quite important, and it communicates something very specific to the community involved. So you can draw inferences from whether you're listed as the first author or the last author of a scientific article. And copyright law just doesn't have mechanisms to precisely calibrate the different um, amounts and types of contributions that count when it comes to authorship. So these two examples provide a really good um, sense of the different ways in which communities are able to self-regulate authorship. And I think that's quite helpful because it tells us that copyright law, it would be valuable for copyright law to leave enough space for these contributors, for these different communities to have these different models of authorship. So I think there's an important role for um, the private organization of the roles and the um, consequences of authorship by creative communities. Mm, mm. So if, if I take the thesis of your book correctly, you're you're arguing that copyright law should be more sensitive to social norms and social contexts when thinking about how to cash out the sort of copyright copyright consequences, as it were, of collective mm. authorship. But but of course, you know there are there are concerns that copyright scholars and policymakers have about sort of uh, the uh, the use of social norms in copyright policy and sort of whether or not social norms actually reflect the policy goals of copyright and you suggest that maybe we should we can and should at least in some contexts be less concerned in the context of of collective authorship so maybe you could you could you could talk a little bit about sort of why you think social norms would be and might be helpful in this context and why some of those concerns we might have about them in other contexts may be mitigated in a collective authorship situation Okay, so I think the main argument of the book is that when it comes to working out who are the authors of a collaborative work, it would be helpful for the joint authorship test to be implied in an inclusive way rather than a restrictive way, so a way that tends to be um, more generous to creative uh, contributors. But it also should be applied in a contextual way. So by what that means really is that when it comes to the joint authorship test, there are different aspects of those of that test. So there are aspects of that test that are questions of fact, where courts just have to look out at the world and see what's really going on here. Are these people collaborating? Are they working together? What's the value of this contribution? Is it significant enough to count as authorship? And when it comes to these questions of fact, I think it's useful for courts to have regard to social norms, because social norms can tell you a lot about the assumptions that creators share. And so I don't think social norms should be simply adopted by courts. So they shouldn't, courts shouldn't look to see who is it that the film community considers to be an author. 
but rather what they should do is they should look at what kinds of contributions are valued in that context that would be considered significant to the work and whether or not contributors are working together and collaborating that's another area in which social norms can help us like the example of wikipedia social norms can tell us that actually because of this particular shared understanding amongst wikipedian contributors when you're adding to a wikipedia page you're not embarking on a wholly new derivative work you're working together with those other wikipedians and you're creating a joint work so I think there's room for that, but there is a real danger when it comes to social norms because social norms don't develop in the same um, environment that legal rules do. So there's a problem of certainty. So knowing what the norm is and making sure that it's sufficiently stable to be something that should be incorporated and considered by the law. There's a problem with whether or not the norms are representative. So in situations where there are unequal bargaining power amongst community members, norms might emerge that are suboptimal because either they're not efficient or because they're unfair. And so where there's an unfair norm or a norm that evolved in this imbalance of power, courts should be cautious about that. And courts should also be cautious about norms that enshrine values that are sort of repugnant to the law's policy values. So something that was incredibly discriminatory on an irrational basis shouldn't be a norm that should be taken into account by courts. So although I think there's an important role for these norms in telling us something about what's really going on in the creative context, we need to sort of filter them through a kind of three-pronged filter to make sure that we only really take into, norm, into account norms which are certain, norms which are representative, and norms which don't conflict with the policy values underpinning the law. Mm, mm. So, so Danielle, that that I, it's really I, I thought the discussion of social norms was was excellent and and really helpful in terms of thinking about balancing these kind of competing concerns in that in that context. And kind of in, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect on what at least struck me as kind of a. a an underlying tension that I think you provide some resolution to, but um, but maybe uh, it would help listeners to kind of understand how that how that played out. And and that is that you know you, you you point to a kind of what you refer to as a kind of pragmatic instrumental approach to thinking about collective authorship, which seems to characterize a lot of the way a lot of ways that courts. Uh, traditionally have approached these kinds of questions and specifically kind of looking to put works in as the hands of as few authors <laughs> as possible not, not not to put too fine a point on it and and you su- you suggest that this may not produce s- sort of the quote unquote right the right outcome and, and it seemed to me that that reflects a kind of two different ways of thinking about what we're trying to achieve and sort of how we would define the right outcome. So I wonder if you could talk about that distinction a little bit and sort of what you see as the sort of right outcome, as the sort of normatively superior way of kind of thinking about the the goals of what we're trying to achieve when we think about how to cash out collective authorship. Yeah, uh, sure. So um, I think what you can see in the joint authorship case law is a tendency to have, as you mentioned, this really restrictive view to what counts. And the reason this arises is because the consequences of joint authorship are joint ownership, which are particularly um, 
the rules on joint ownership are particularly restrictive in the UK. So what it means basically is every single joint owner of copyright has the right to basically stop the work from being used or exploited. So you need the consent of every single joint owner in order to license or use the work. And this includes even one joint owner themselves using the work. So it's really quite restrictive. And you can see when faced with these really restrictive joint ownership rules, judges have tended to take a pragmatic and, and what I'm calling this pragmatic instrumental approach, which is they are reticent to recognize all the joint authors because they're worried about um, a hold-up problem that will arise where you have so many people who need to agree to use a work, which means the work doesn't end up being dis disseminated and ultimately it's not for the public benefit. And so what I argue is that this assumes that there are going to be huge problems when it comes to disseminating works and getting authors to agree. And in reality, the case studies on, on um, collective authorship reveal that actually creators are really remarkably good when it comes to streamlining and organizing the um, authorship consequences of, of the work, whether it comes to the exploitation of the work or working out who should be named and credited as an author. So there are these various kind of private ordering mechanisms. So you can use contract to do this or social norms might do it in a more informal way. And so Collective authorship groups are actually really good at doing this, and they do it in a way that's much better than what the law could do, because they can adopt solutions that are very flexible to the particular circumstances that face them and the needs that, that arise in that, um, in that situation. So I think the role of the law here should be, instead of being explicitly concerned with this question of exploitation, what the law should be concerned with is providing a very good default minimum standard, which contributors can then use as a bargaining chip in negotiations with other contributors to ensure that they're credited or that they get the adequate remuneration they need. And so I try to say that we shouldn't mix the question of who is an author with the separate question of who is an owner. And that there is actually an important role for the for copyright in providing a um, it's sort of its expressive role in the symbolic role of being called an author values is valued quite a lot to creators. And in the UK, you get moral rights if you're an author in most situations. So the right to be attributed as an author, something that can be actually more important to quite a lot of contributors, even more important in some cases than remuneration um, in situations where reputation is quite important for encouraging creativity. So I argue that actually an inclusive approach is best because it results in the right outcome in giving those contributors the right to attribution and giving them the bargaining chip that they need to bargain with their co-contributors and come to an optimal solution as to how that work should be um, best exploited. And the restrictive approach has a kind of downside in the sense that it will tend to gravitate to the person who has most control, most power, who's the most dominant player. And that person, I argue, is already quite well equipped because of their bargaining power to bargain for the, for the um, conditions that they need. Whereas it's the minor contributors who don't necessarily have that bargaining power and the bargaining chip that the law could give them by granting them joint authorship actually would be quite valuable to those contributors and enable them to better secure 
uh, protection of their interests. So I don't think we need to worry that much about the holdups because I think the powerful players are in the position to contract. And if you give those minor contributors a bargaining chip, it actually helps because it gives the major players a incentive to actually explicitly set out at the outset how authorship should be dealt with, how the work should be exploited um, in a way that should enhance clarity, hopefully in the long run. Yeah, that's just to say that's the, the view that I had behind that idea. Yeah, no, I really like that because it it, it, it suggests a subtle way of improving not only the equity of the way we think about authorship in a collective authorship situation, but but also seems to align the sort of assignment of authorship more closely to the actual kind of often attribution-based incentives that people actually respond to when they're engaging in, in the creation of works of authorship. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's really useful to have um, an idea of authorship in copyright law that is more closely aligned to what creators understand authorship to mean in their creative uh, communities. I think it's good for enhancing the credibility of the law and it allows the law to provide a helpful standard, a good a standard of kind of good authorship. Excellent. Well, D- Daniela, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun. Come take your radio, don't leave it by me no more. Come take your radio, don't leave it by me no more. Too much nonsense for me, nobody thinks I'm gone. No, not me, I don't want no radio, it don't make no sense. Robbery with violence. Good things from the garden, garden in the valley. <laughs> valley of the dolly, green giants. And from Sandy Grandy to Miaro, go with Shell. From Miara to Rio Claro, go with Shell. From Rio Claro to San Fernando, go with Shell. Wherever you go, go with Shell. Free bread spread, pillowcases, and bad towels when you buy Tide. Valley of the Jolly. Green Giants. Fifty monthly, that ain't good enough for me. I go get heart failure, too much commercial, mama. Well, I win pay an accent, put me in jail. That's right, man, I hate Radio Trinidad. They're doing that for spite. They frightened me child last night. <laughs> Baby, have a cold, use coffee and all. And a boot for shoes. Good as any, better than many. A boot for shoes. A boot for shoes. A boot for shoes. A boot for shoes. Mr. Bob Kittens, your program is in the ratings. You're the goodest jockey, but at times you're so faulty. Man, the king is the king, and the king need the plug. The rest is dog, don't do that again, Bobby, you're watching at you. 
Don't try no screw. Who is talking to the tiger? I'm talking to the trainer. And if sorrows and distress should come to your home, Simpson Funeral Agency would be just too happy to help you, Bobby. <laughs> We regret to announce the death of Bob Gittins. That was Lord Melody talking about Mr. Bob Gittins and the man who's the king and the king maybe.